Welcome back to all our listeners to Keeping Up With The Chemos. This is our second in the series on Mervatexumab. I'm Tracy Lynn Hall, a gynecologic oncologist at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas, and I'm joined by... Hi, this is Judith Smith, and I'm an oncology clinical pharmacy specialist and faculty at McGovern Medical School, also here in Houston, Texas. Hi, I'm Kathleen Moore. I'm a juvenile oncologist at the Stevenson Cancer Center at the University of Oklahoma in Oklahoma City. Hi there, my name is Julia Canestraro. I'm an assistant attending optometrist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Hi, I'm Karen Lyle. I'm a physician assistant at McGee Women's Hospital at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. As we get our patients ready for getting rituximab, what are some good approaches for how you approach patient education and getting the patient consented for chemo? I think it can look different at each institution depending on what your process and your resources are. For sure, we have a team-based approach and it's um, any new start of a chemo is usually initiated by the physician who does initial education, but then our patients generally have a pretty long sit down with our nurses who will go through details, reinforce with the patients and give them written literature. I think the written literature is huge because when the patients get home and forget half of what we've said, then they've got it in front of them. Excellent. And has anyone had any experience with setting up the team chemotherapy templates with their EMR system? It's a pretty easy drug in terms of the template. We're very fortunate in that we have clinical pharmacists at our site who are worth their weight in gold, by the way. And so they really set up a lot of the templates for us. And for this medication, there's very standard pre-medications for antiemetics that we can talk about. The only fidgety thing you have to remember is that it's dosed by adjusted ideal body weight and the ideal body weight. So it's a little bit of a different calculator that you have to make sure gets into that calculation so you get the right dose calculated. But other than that, there's not a lot of, there's only three doses. There's not any strange labs. So it's not a lot of fidgety things that have to go into it. So Dr. Moore, it's a good opportunity just to kind of clarify, because I know you and I have talked about this offline, the adjusted ideal body weight is the same equation and calculation that we typically have called adjusted body weight in things. I know they were challenged with the FDA mandating this new terminology of AIBW, which is not what we typically have been used to in clinical practice, but it is the same equation. Uh, and that may help your EMR team in pointing the template to the right equation and weight to pull in. Right. It's definitely important in the education downstream for people to understand what that weight is and understanding what this new acronym of AIBW is. That's definitely a great point to think about. Another thing that, you know, we always think about when we're getting set to administer medications is do we need to make any dose modifications for our patients, say with hepatic or renal impairment? This um, drug as of now has not undergone testing in patients with hepatic or renal impairment. So we don't have data on that to really give kind of evidence-based guidelines. So I think you have to come in with pretty normal labs. So that might be a contraindication then if you had someone that had very out of window kind of renal or, or hepatic function, there's not a lot of data to justify what you might see there. One other thing that commonly comes up is drug interactions. Is that anything that we need to be a, a concerned about with mirtexumab? No, we don't really have its IV. And so there's not really any kind of food effects, which you see with oral things or medications that we have to be incredibly careful about other than 
The only thing I'll say is that the patient can't be on folate supplements. So you do want to stop them if they're taking folate supplements. I forgot to mention that earlier. A lot of our patients are taking supplements. So you do have to specifically ask about that. But so that's sort of an interaction in terms of efficacy. But other than that, no. That's a great point. Make sure you're checking those supplements. And as we get ready to get the patient prepared for chemo after they've had their eye exams and have clearance from the optometrist or ophthalmologist, what pre-medications are needed before administration? Juliet, can you help us there? There are two main drops that the patient will be taking and using. The first is a steroid eye drop. They're instructed to use that six times a day starting the day before their cycle. And then days one through four, starting the day of treatment up till day four, they're also continuing to use that six times a day. And then days five to eight, they'll use it four times a day. And this is repeated each cycle. And then we also encourage the use of preservative-free artificial tears at least four times a day in both eyes. I know you were with us on our first podcast when we were talking about other ADC that we're using in gonologic oncology, the tisopinib. What's different about the administration here? What's not required that we, can you tell us a little bit more about the use of ice packs? Do we still need to use that? We do not need to use ice packs. And I think for tisotamab, I think they also use bromonidine eye drops. It's a vasoconstricting eye drop, and that's not used with this treatment either. Yeah, so we don't need to worry about ice packs because that sometimes causes a bit of stress for some of our, for some of the team, but we don't need to worry about that here. That's a great reminder. Karen and Dr. Moore, as we are getting patients set up for this, are there any pre-medications other than the eye drops that are needed? I would use, just as we did in the clinical trial in Mirasol, I would use an anti-emetic and it doesn't have to be any particular one, whatever your institution standard anti-emetic is, but without an anti-emetic on forward one, we didn't mandate it. And we did see quite a bit of infusionally related nausea, which was kind of a surprise because we didn't see that as much in the phase one. And so in Mirasol, we had it as a part of the protocol and hopefully we'll see that that helped quite a bit. So I would just have a standard on Dianzatron or whatever your institution uses for an anti-emetic as a pre-med. And then, but you don't need the Benadryl and all that stuff because there's no reactions. Then you also just need to counsel the patient for the fact that about 30% of participants will get diarrhea. And it tends to be low grade, mostly grade one, a little bit grade two, and very, very manageable with over-the-counter antidiarrheals. It's not something that causes discontinuations, but you just have to warn your folks that that could happen and what to do so they can just jump on it at home so they're not getting dehydrated or annoyed. And I'm also very careful when I see the patients in the clinic before chemo, make sure to reinforce if your medicine that you're using at home to rescue your nausea or your diarrhea isn't working call us. Don't sit at home and stuff, right? It, it's huge for them to call back and communicate to the team so that we can make adjustments. There's a lot of good information tonight to help us get started in administration. Are there any key take-home points from the group? Dr. Moore, why don't we start with you tonight? It's with any new therapy, I think setting patient expectations is key. And so for those of us that are just lucky enough to practice in big centers where we have clinical pharmacists, because I counsel my patients, actually, I think pretty well. And then my clinical pharmacist spends twice as much time with them and sends them home with handouts. And so they get, it's just like genetic counseling. You think you're really good until a genetic counselor actually does a (laughs) 10 times better job. So I'm really fortunate to have that but kind of wherever you are, this isn't a difficult medicine to use. Honestly, the eye toxicity may sound 
daunting, but it's we have great mitigation strategies and this has been launched globally and there's lots of help for you. But it's just setting expectations, especially around the eye toxicity. That's one of the things that scares patients the most. And I've had patients come in because someone has told them they could go blind because of this, which we've treated over 500 patients and it's 100% reversible, to be honest. So, but you just have to make sure patients know half of them can get it. It's usually mild. If they get it, don't drive the car in, call us and come in, hold dose. And it usually is better in a week. So setting expectations is key, but that's true with any drug we use. I think patient monitoring and helping with compliance and follow-up is huge. If there's the resource to have somebody on the team, especially in the first cycle or two, that can just do a quick check-in and say, how are you doing? Did you remember your eye drops? You remembered to follow through are you nauseous? Are you having any side effects? Would be huge to the success of patients in their compliance with the regimens to support being on rivotuximab. To echo what was said previously, it's nice to hear that everyone is helping to remind these patients about their drops and they're calling to check in on them. And sometimes we'll just give them a, a schedule. And so they can check it off throughout the day when they've used their drops. It's a little bit easier to deal with and it doesn't feel so daunting. This is some excellent take-home points. Thank you to our panel. We really appreciate your expertise and insights. And we invite our listeners to join us for our third podcast in this series, which will focus on following up and monitoring between cycles. The information presented is that of the contributing faculty and presenters and does not necessarily represent the views of the Society of Gynecologic Oncology or any named company or organization providing financial support. Specific therapies discussed may not be approved and or specified for use as indicated by the faculty or presenters. If you like what you heard today, please let us know by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and hitting the follow button wherever you're listening. If you have suggestions for future SGO On The Go podcasts, please email us directly at education at sgo.org.